Welcome back to this week's episode of TF. Uh, it is a configuration we don't do very often, uh, It's, but I'm interested to see what it's capable of. Uh, it's myself, Alice, and Hussein today, um, and we are talking to Aaron Merritt, uh, who is a journalist uh, who specializes in uh, defense and the arms trade, who's worked for Shadow Diffid, and who also served as the Economist Iran correspondent for several years. And you can follow him on Twitter at a underscore merit. Yeah, um, another another thigh slapping episode of our comedy podcast. Oh yeah, this is. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, after after we talked about um, the extent to which the UK supplies riot gear to American cops, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about some of the other sort of implements that we that we sell to facilitate your creativity or whatever worldwide. Um, yeah. And with with that in mind, I've I've selected a reading. It's sort of a long one, but it's a reading for us to open with um, mm. about the sort of things that uh, British companies sell and that the British government facilitates the sale of, and their use in uh, the the ongoing Saudi offensive in Yemen. And I will say this is this is like if you like a, a content warning or a trigger warning or whatever else you want to call it. Um, if you don't want to hear something quite gruesome, I would skip ahead maybe a couple of minutes in the podcast because uh, this will thoroughly ruin your day. But I think it is uh, sort of incumbent on us to to see what's being done with well our money and in our name. Uh, so this is from the New York Times, um, and it, it in this case it's an American weapon being used by the Saudis, uh, but the British ones are much the same. Um, so I'll start I'll start reading this now. The nose of the weapon hit rock, tripping a fuse in its tail section that detonated the equivalent of 200 pounds of TNT. When a bomb like this explodes, the shell fractures into several thousand pieces, a puzzle of steel shards flying through the air at up to eight times the speed of sound. Steel moving that fast doesn't just kill people, it rearranges them. It removes appendages from torsos, it disassembles bodies and redistributes their parts. A sphere of expanding gas coming off the bomb, meanwhile, fills a, bol- a body's hollow parts with energy, rupturing eardrums, collapsing lungs, perforating abdominal cavities. The blast wave pushes air to such extraordinary speeds that the wind alone can cast limbs off bodies. The back of the tanker truck launched off its chassis and slammed into rock. Jagged pieces of bomb flew thousands of miles per hour outward, and Rabia was almost fully decapitated. The top half of his face was removed, leaving just an open lower jaw. The heat of the blast burned most of his clothes off and charred his skin, so he was left naked, his genitals exposed, his body actually smoking. Next to him, his cousin, Al-Qadi, the judge, was burning alive, his blood vessels expelling water and his body inflating. He began to scream. Fahd was picked up, pierced with shrapnel, both of his arms shattering. Metal had bit into leg, trunk, jaw, eye. One piece entered his back and exited his chest, collapsing his lungs. By the time he woke up, he was suffocating. But he wasn't even aware of any of these things, because his brain had been taken over by pain that seemed to come from another world. As the dust began to clear, he saw that the ground was littered with burning chunks of metal. He felt as if he were in hell, as if it were Judgment Day. When he tried to crawl over the burning material, he fell down to his side because his forearms were pulverized. 
He began to roll over superheated metal over the body parts of his friends. He wasn't thinking about his friends. He wasn't thinking about anyone. In that moment, Thard forgot he had children. Raytheon Missiles and Defense. We are one global team. 30,000 employees across 28 countries. Dedicated to solving our customers' most complex, mission-critical challenges. How are we all feeling? Oh my goodness. Um, are we, are we feeling like Raytheon is going to solve our most complex mission critical needs? Well, and I thought, why don't we ask Aaron that? Uh, Aaron, how do you, just by way of introduction, sort of what are your, some of your thoughts about that and about Raytheon's glib PR? Um, so Raytheon, uh, like a, is a prime contractor in America, is similar to BAE is in the UK. And their um, marketing spiel and their shareholder spiel is essentially, if you can um, arm, uh, if you can arm people to the hilt, you create a situation where you deter violence, and therefore the world is more peaceful. Um, and everyone laps this up, even though the sort of empirical evidence to that isn't true. Because if you arm our Gulf allies, they can use disproportionate power, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to use against uh, their political enemies, which is pretty much what we've been seeing uh, with the Yemen conflict, which started in 2015. Um, it's important to stress that Saudi Arabia, before 2015, hadn't really used the enormous amount of um, hardware at their disposal. So they had seen some action in um, the anti-ISIS war, and they had been bombing the Houthis a little bit uh, in wars, which became known as the Sada Wars, uh, which was called Operation Scorched Earth. Um, they weren't really like hiding what their plans were. But in 2015, they uh, started using these planes and uh, the tempo of the war went up so much they couldn't do it themselves. So they really required UK training, um, UK logistical support, UK manpower on the ground. Um, uh, contracted by the MOD under long-standing contracts, and uh, obviously UK and US hardware. So it enabled them to essentially uh, launch a shock and awe campaign, which has been going on to this day um, in Yemen. Mm. And I mean, it's I think it's it's important it's important to remember, right, that Raytheon and, and BAE Systems and so on they position themselves in these way they, they they almost position themselves like tech companies saying we're going to solve problems we're going to make the world a better place but the complex complex problem they are solving is how to it, how yeah how to yeah, dis, dismantle a tanker truck that has been used to like help bore a well in rural yeah. Yemen and I think that it's important to know because I I remember remember we talked about this uh, a little bit on our you know, on our episode about arms export, we said we we're going to talk about it more. And I think it's important to know precisely what's going on. And precisely, as, as, as you say, Aaron, sort of how, how this is being carried out, and how it is intimately connected uh, to American and British politics. Yep. So it's an episode that's going to make you feel bad. And hopefully <laughs> has, has already made you quite angry. Yes. Uh, Hussein, before I jump in, uh, I want to get your thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that like that um, extract for Alice read came from this very long New York Times piece, which took me a couple of days to um, get through. Partly because it is very long, and I have the attention span of um, a distracted goose, but also best because it's very, it's really tough to get through 
the pictures are really a lot like I don't really know how to describe it in a way that isn't like horrifying. And I think just like as a thought that we'll kind of be talking about through the episode, I'm sure. But it's one where I sort of think about how when you know people who people who are like on the labor right or kind of on the centrist right talk about how when the left talk about like you know imperialism and militarism that we delve into what they call conspiracy theories. The idea that like you know Britain has no involvement in these like foreign wars or their involvement is only limited in humanitarian and it's just about opening humanitarian corridors and that's it. And I think like this is a very good insight into not only how we are very involved, but also how um, just contracting and privatization and the continued privatization of like military campaigns obscures that type of responsibility and it obscures mm-hmm. that type of, you know, it is, it makes it harder for us to talk about militarism and contracting militarism as policy mm. because of how obscure it is. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but no, absolutely. I, this is, this is I, the kind of thing that the labor right like to talk about as like a muscular liberalism, right? Like this is, this is, this is what the muscle is doing. Well, I guess, I, yeah. I guess like the, the, the thing I was trying to get at was more like, they'll kind of reasonably say that we want fewer wars or we want like, you know, we don't really want to participate in war and everything, but the, the, the power of like these organizations, whether they are like Raytheon or BAE or even like, you know, places like Serco and stuff like the, the increasing use of them as contractors and the invasion that they get, even as they are kind of proven to be not just massively, um, uh, incompetent, but also like inherently corrupt as well. Um, it sort of just kind of, it, it, it says a lot about like how, what the next kind of few years of, especially if you're on the left, the, the next few years of like interacting with this type of, um, prevailing militarism is going to look like. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so I, and in that spirit, uh, I want to sort of almost take us back to basics. So we spoke a little bit about how arms export licenses work, but uh, I think, Aaron, it's worth our while to ask you in detail how a bomb made in Scotland at the Raytheon factory ends up getting dropped on Yemen and how that is an overtly political decision uh, that is, again, made politically. Uh, so, yeah, um, I listened to your last episode and you were spot on. Um, and essentially, as you described, the statutory responsibility for um, the export of controlled goods, which include arms um, and also some defensive equipment like um, like uh, body armor or anything which we wouldn't really anything you really want to regulate um, comes down to the uh, to the Secretary of State for International Trade. Previously, it was Biz, um, and this obscures uh, more than it reveals, really, because. The actual minister in charge of uh, the criteria uh, which you would be most interested in looking at for arms exports to dodgy countries is the foreign secretary. So they sign off on something called Criterion 2 of the Consolidated Criteria. It all sounds quite dreary. But what that means really is that if there is a, quote, clear risk that the arms you're selling might be used in the commission of serious violations of international humanitarian law, which essentially means uh, deliberately or recklessly targeting civilians. So uh, bombing water infrastructure, bombing food infrastructure, bombing markets, bombing hospitals, or or just using disproportionate force um, like they did, for example, in 2015 over SADA, which is the um, sort of Houthi stronghold. 
uh, you cannot sell them arms under UK law. And this was signed off by Boris Johnson when he was um, when he was uh, the foreign minister, um, and it then was challenged in a judicial review last year. And the courts found that ministers um, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt, Liam Fox, Sajid Javid had been acting illegally when they uh, signed off these licenses. And the reason they had been acting legally, because they were very, very explicit about, about this for courts, they had just been totally ignoring all the allegations of, um, of deliberate or reckless attacks against civilians. They just decided not to look at it. Hmm. Yeah, so, I, pr- I pretend I do not see it. Yeah, yeah precisely. And I think what you, you, it's noted, notable here, right, that there is a real, a, a considerable financial incentive for them to do so. So I have some of the figures, uh, which is in 2015, um, military exports from Britain to Saudi Arabia multiplied 35-fold from just 83 million to 2.9 billion. Um, I wouldn't be that, surprised if it was considerably higher as well, because as you mentioned yeah. also in your last episode, you've got these open licenses which came in, um, I believe, in the early years of Cam- uh, of the Cameron government, where you can, uh, like, th- there's certain licenses which say you can move X amount of uh, air- air- aircraft parts or X amount of bombs to the end user, and that's what your license covers. But then there are these open licenses which just give people a carte, uh, companies a carte blanche to export. And in Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of these open licenses. For example, the Paveway bombs, which, as you described, are built um, in uh, Fife, in um, a small new town in Glenrothes. Uh, they had open licenses throughout the throughout the majority of the war. So we don't know. And under open licenses, you don't have to release the quantity. The companies obviously know how many they're shipping, but it's not uh, in- incumbent on them to to tell the government or the public. So I'd, it could be hundreds of times um, mm. an increase. Yeah, we don't know. They don't. They don't identify the holders of any of these licenses publicly either, uh, which was the thing that that I was I was trying to find out when I was trying to. Uh, I, I I wanted to list, if possible, the uh, the manufacturers of uh, tear gas in the UK, and absolutely impossible to find. Um, yeah. So let alone, like you, you, you can you can point to the large companies. You can point to your your BAE or your Raytheon, uh, but like the ownership structure is such that like it will be a subsidiary of Raytheon Missiles and Defense, uh, mm-hmm. and then you know parts will be made in a subsidiary of a subsidiary, and none of this is public. Yeah, it it, it is, and I think it's it's public. It's not public for a very good reason, mm-hmm. and I think one of that very good re- that. Well, not very good reason, but a, a strategic reason on the part of the people doing it. Uh, and this is, and it's not public because it's not in the interests of the government to make it public. Because it's not in the interests of the companies to have that be known what it is that they're doing in detail. You know, that's why that's why we have these these strange techie PR um, moves by them. Whether it's you know, you know, Raytheon, Ra- Raytheon presents, you know, we're gonna. Have like girls in STEM, so that you know anyone can be Major Kong. Um, we're all, but, and, and so the all of these, all this obscurationism means that no one really knows and no one can know. And part of this also, and you quote David Waring um, in, in one of your pieces, where he he says that he estimates a fifth of the UK current account deficit is financed by Saudi cash, uh, which stabilizes an increasingly vulnerable pound, and that's the way that it comes in. 
So it is in nobody's interest that anybody in the public be able to understand and critique what is actually going on. Uh, the British, it's no exaggeration to say the British economy is propped up by uh, the ex- defense export sector. And this was a deliberate decision made by um, Thatcher, like when she brought in the monetarism, which decimated a lot of British industry, she 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 intervened to save um, the uh, the defense export industry by flying to Saudi Arabia and um, signing the Al Yamamah deal, which is known for mm. which is known for its corruption, because obviously Tony Blair quashed the serious fraud officers' investigation into the the terms in which it was negotiated. There were lots of bribes paid, uh, BA systems paid for. Um, prostitutes for various Saudi princes, like um, ho- hotel rooms, uh, trips to Harrods. Just good like, self care, you know. Yeah. So, so this this Al, this Al Yamamah deal is the key. But what is rarely um, reported on the Al Yamamah deal is the actual terms. And there's a great uh, there's a great researcher called um, Mike Lewis, who was a UN's weapon investigator, um, and he he he's basically because the terms of Al Yamamah have never been made public. But then there are cabinet minutes which come out through uh, Q and the National Archives, which sort of refer to sections of the terms of the Al Yamamah deal. And um, by by sort of quite like good forensic inference, he's determined that Britain signed up essentially to underwrite Saudi security in the 1980s, where Saudi was feeling worried about the Iranian Revolution. They were worried, like there were some, there were some like domestic zealots who took over the Grand Mosque in um, in 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 Mecca, and they really wanted to get their hands uh, on the top uh, aviation technology so they could like see off any any challenge. And at this time, Britain was financially in a huge amount of trouble, so they signed this sort of Faustian pact, whereby Britain said explicitly in uh, under contract that. If Saudi Arabia gets involved in any conflict, this is specifically outlined that Britain will um, support it through uh, contractors so that they can use the weapons and through the weapons themselves to fight any conflict. So we are we, we are we support Saudi Arabia to the hilt in exchange. The petrodollars which Saudi Arabia gets from selling oil across the world are recycled back into the uh, to the UK economy. So, and it makes and, makes central London very weird because it's now just like uh, a playground for lots of like various princes. Um, also, the the other thing that's that's very funny to me is that uh, we've we've seen sort of the carrot of these petrodollars. The stick is that when the serious fraud office was investigating the Ali Ahmad deal, uh, the Saudi ambassador to the UK threatened to nine eleven us. <laughs> Just like just for funsies, um, like what what was the actual what the was actual, the actual the actual threat was the like if if the 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 probe was allowed to go on, then Saudi would suspend all of their intelligence sharing and security cooperation with the UK. Reading between the lines, what this means is roughly the same the same thing as like the Saudi Foreign Ministry tweeting that image of like the Air Canada plane flying into Toronto, right? Yeah. And <laughs> when, when you hear British, British ministers always like this word "robust," so they say we have a very robust arms export control system, and they also say we have very robust conversations with our Saudi allies about the question oh, yeah. of, about the question of human rights. Great but big I, conversations. I always think like it's robust the other way around. Saudi Arabia, one hundred percent. The, the Damocles sword is hanging over Britain if we mess with Saudi Arabia, and this is a situation we've got ourselves into. I spoke to a um. 
a minister who was um, batting for the Saudi war throughout 2016 when I used to work um, uh, for his counterpart uh, in, uh, in parliament uh, on, the sh- on the shadow benches. And he told me that at the National Security Council, um, which is essentially where these strategic decisions are made and maintained, uh, he was told by like senior mandarins and uh, that Saudi Arabia had threatened to sort of like pull the financial rug from under Britain unless they didn't support their war in Yemen. And these same ministers, they knew that Saudi Arabia couldn't win this war because no one has ever won a war against guerrilla insurgents with aircraft. Like it just, it's literally never happened. No, and, but the good and- news is the longer it drags on, the more guidance packages and the more bombs you get to sell. Um, got it. It's perfect. Oh, incidentally, a, a, a question I like, which which I know the answer to, but just as like a general interest, I've told Riley this. Do you happen to know what Al Yamama means in Arabic? Uh, no, I don't. It's the dove. I really like that. <laughs> it's a real case of the subtext becoming text. Um, the, the Saudis love a good code name, which is why, incidentally, the Eurofighter, which they uh, they bought as part of this deal, uh, is codenamed in Saudi service as um, a salam, uh, peace. Oh my! Just mm. very, very, very cool country full of normal decision makers. They just, they, they just, they just like irony. irony yeah, I mean. It's- We've been making fun of of golf militaries on the show for a while. It's one of my favorite running gags. Like the the idea that like the Emirati military is like it's eighty percent of its budget is like Dior leather belts, right? <laughs> but like the, the the Saudis, there is there is a certain special uh, circle of hell for uh, I think a lot of the the, the top uh, Saudi military people, and uh, y- you see this right. Um, and uh, you know that, like you say about robustness, this is all very explicit on one side. It's only the British who have to who have to pretend to be like, oh well, we have these conversations about human rights. No one in Saudi Arabia is coming back and saying like, yeah, no, they told us about human rights. It's just like, no, of course not. It's it it would be ridiculous. It's it, it's perfectly evident what the uh, what the balance of power is there on one side. But for some reason, we have to like save our blushes and be like, yeah, no, we're 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 being very responsible about this. Well, it's uh, it's you know, all friend of the show Ollie Thorne uh, came on, and we talked, and if you remember, we talked about this concept of the intellectual lacuna, something that as many times as it can be said and evidenced is never really allowed to be known. It's not allowed to be publicly known. And so it, it, and it is by just sheer refusal to stop engaging in PR, uh, the conservatives essentially are, are, are able to say, and the conservatives and you know, the sort of members of you know, what I think Derek Davison quite helpfully calls the foreign policy blob that sort of advocates for endless war, you know, they are, everyone knows it's not true. But it's not allowed to be publicly acknowledged that there is that that this relationship is anything but uh, a constructive mutual defense pact between uh, the <laughs> UK and Saudi Arabia, regional ally. Yeah, yeah. Where and it's not a and it's uh, all of the civilian deaths that happen just seem to slide off of the topic. Because it just goes back to them yeah. saying, actually, we don't. It's against the rules I mean, for us to this report. Is, this to, is the thing. Um, Right. To, to war criminals. It, it, in order to like articulate this relationship, I want to use a metaphor, but I don't want to suggest, as it, as this might do, that Britain is blameless or a victim in this, because as 
as you say, and we got ourselves. I mean, we got ourselves into this, right, in the first place. This is a, a series of British policy decisions. But Saudi Arabia is a key strategic ally of Britain in the same way that Don Corleone is a key strategic ally of, like, uh, a, a China shop that pays protection money, right? Like, <laughs> It's perfect, yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, it all comes down to, like, I mean... This can be overdone a little bit, but this sort of sense, particularly in the 80s, the sense of sort of imperial grandeur, like the idea that Britain needs to have its own independent air deterrent. And like when it looked, when it shipped, because we have a typhoon, which we, um, which we, we have a tornado rather, which we uh, produced independently. And then when it came to the typhoon, we couldn't afford to produce it, even in consortium with the Italians and the Germans without uh, an enormous export market, which was Saudi Arabia. So the Saudi Arabia export deal was built into the very, um, to the, to the very, stru- to the very structure of the UK's independent air deterrent. We would not be able to have one without uh, selling uh, to monsters in the Gulf who want to use mm. it for whatever they need like, to. I'm- I'm also very, very interested in this idea of imperial power because it it brings it into into sort of my specialist subject, which is uh, the whole debacle around Libya, right? Um, part of the reason why uh, Libya has become so fucked over the course of, uh, well, literally the last ten years is because of this sort of I, I I think almost reflexive tendency within within the intelligence services within the blob generally to try to like. Essentially, to get one over on the Americans, right? Like the Blair going to the desert and Gaddafi's sort of come to Jesus moment, followed by MI6 sending people to Libya to torture them and so on and so forth. All of that was premised on the idea that, like, if we can get in there first, if we can become uh, friendly, then we can sort of we can undercut the Americans and have our own special strategic ally. Um, and and it will make us feel very important again. And then subsequently, when the Arab Spring happened, uh, we started, you know, sort of uh, training and arming various unsavory people uh, on the basis that and everyone oh, we, we wanted to be trained and armed. If you wanted to be trained yeah. and armed, we would do it because we loved feeling well, like, like we were like yeah, we loved feeling. Well, no, like that's the teacher. not not even that. Not even that really, because like there's there's I think. Part of the reason why I love talking about Libya so much is that it, it really lays bare a lot of the hypocrisy in that when Cameron decided that he wanted to get his war on, right, there was a great deal of talk about like uh, a transition to democracy, right? Uh, Libya was going to be like, uh, I don't know, it was going to be like Spain, but a little bit south, right? It was going to be, uh, it was going to be nice, it was going to be representative and wholesome. Uh, at the same time that that was happening, we were flying in. SAS patrols and SAS officers to talk to quite possibly like some of the same people who would later be in ISIS or Al Qaeda and like North Africa or whoever else. And it was like, it was, again, it was one of these lacunae, right? It was instinctively known within the British state that whatever, whatever sort of power structure formed in Libya after the revolution, it was going to be Islamist controlled. And therefore, those were the people that we wanted to cultivate. But of course, we never actually said this, and so you would still have, uh, you know, ver- various NATO leaders and heads of state going on television and talking about how, um, you know, the, the the Libyan people's struggle for democracy uh, was was going to like be be assisted to fruition, and it was it was so cynical uh, that I I just I I remain uh, sort of in awe of it, really. Um, I want to be slightly careful here, but when I'm when I was working for this minister, I was asking a lot of PQs about. 
um, about the relationship between the Manchester bomber. Um, I think oh yeah, I don't. I don't have to be careful because I have. Uh, I, I am an idiot, and I work on like entire guesswork. But it's very, very funny that uh, you can just sort of you can cultivate these absolute pet head banging psychopaths, walk them through the airport in both directions. Uh, and then as soon as you, you import them back to Britain, you say, well, you promised to hang up the suicide vest, right? Yeah. And it turns out, yeah, not so much. Yeah, it's like just the way the ministers respond to questions about Abedi and his father, because they were part of, I think it was called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, and they were yep. one of, and they were they were a group which was uh, meant to sort of be liberating Libya. And uh, I, it seems that he was an asset of the UK. And then he came back after we opened the doors for him and many other sort of like Libyan diaspora to go and get rid of Gaddafi. And then he came back because he was pissed off. It's like the Boko boomerang thing. It's like they come back and they cause all sorts of hell for you when um, when you don't need them anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was ever thus, right? Like that's the it, it's it's trite even to say this about Bin Laden, right? Is that like you, you think that you have this sort of this pet jihadist that you can kind of keep on a leash, and the whole time he's just getting madder and madder and madder about the fact that you're you know stationing troops in Saudi Arabia or whatever else. Mm -hmm. It's it's ultimately it seems like a kind. If you want to sort of look at a psychological reason for this, uh, it seems like a kind of. A kind of anxiety and arrogance. Yeah, well, uh, like ang anxiety about the departure from sort of some halcyon day where we could go and you know kill all the inhabitants of any island we wanted to, and no one really, and everyone kind of thought it was good. Mm -hmm. Is nostalgia for that, and anxiety that not only is it not going, is that not coming back? It's getting worse. Um, and I, th I think like number one, we talk a lot on this show about how about. Britain's relationship with its former empire and its psychological relationship with its empire. And I think it's important to know that there is a clear line to be drawn between imperial nostalgia and what happened to that um, that truck in Yemen. Oh, yeah. I, I, this, is, this is why I'm, I'm so curious about the figure uh, of the SAS in this, right? Is second, second of all, I have a side of the second point here as well, mm. is that we are, is, is that we, is that Britain especially is almost acts neurotically from a foreign policy perspective um, in order to try and assure and fix and control things. Um, it, like, for example, trying to manage Libya's transition to democracy and so on. Well, at the same time, at home, sort of undermining, undercutting, and um, sort of ruining the democratic institutions that we do have. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's we, even just abroad, it's you know, pathetic, it, right? Is in some sense, right, we would genuinely be a more psychologically healthy country if we pursued the kind of post-colonial policy that France does, where they just straight up still occupy countries and just assassinate <laughs> a prime minister of some African country every like year and a half or so. Instead, we still have to do this thing where we convince ourselves that we're like uh, we're more we're above this. We're more important than that, and it's it, not demonstrably untrue. Uh, so I just I want to focus us a little bit back on on Saudi. I mean, these are all deeply connected issues, of course. But I want to go back to uh, the finding in 2019 um, that Britain Br that Britain had signed off arms export licenses illegally. That ministers were acting illegally when they did that. And Liz Truss's excuse for doing that was um, opening sorry, up new I, pork yeah, markets. Sorry, it's my first day. I'm not very good at my job. <laughs> 
Yeah, so um, as I as I mentioned, um, it was found that ministers have been acting illegally, and the court sort of they, they they found this sort of mutually accommodating fudge with the executive, basically, where they said, okay, you can't issue any new licenses to Saudi Arabia until you do a, re- a review. This was over a year ago, and we still haven't seen the review done. And as you mentioned, um, they violated the term they violated those terms by issuing new licenses anyway, a small amount of them, but like. I went up to um, the Glen Rothes uh, Raytheon factory and I spoke to a few of the um, people who work there and people who have worked there. And the, the impression I get is one guy told me that 90, uh, 90% of the trade of these paveway bombs goes to the US, to the parent company. And my suspicion is, is that the, the, the sort of like the fix considering this court order, has been to just send the arms to Saudi via America because they have got no court case um, binding them. So the, yeah. it, it just it just continues because the arms trade is like a web. You've just got like – you've got people producing components across Europe, like the the, the, the – um, what do you call it? The, the, the warhead is produced in a small poor town in Sardinia – and then it gets shipped to a poor small town in Scotland, and then it gets mounted onto a missile, uh, which is pro- the fins are produced in a small uh, in Brighton. The uh, the racks are produced in Portsmouth, and then they go to America, and then they're re-exported. So there's no real way to if 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 the defence um, procurement industry is a web, if you try and stop one sort of thread of that web, it will just go around. It will just go around another way. Hmm. Well, it's the and, and I am I, I. It is notable, I think, right that that a lot of these this production is done in poor small towns, and, and that the involvement of um, British workers directly in building these in building these bombs, uh, the the requirement of the British state to sign a deal with the devil where they are willing to underwrite anything Saudi does. I think it is something you absolutely cannot disconnect from the long-term institutional decline of this country and it's turning into a fundamentally unwell place the, the way i the way i put it in this um, prospect piece was that it's sort of like a moral contagion like it was it was it was signed off in the 80s and then now we're bound to whatever saudi arabia does and like the civil servants all 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 feel are all complicit in this because they are forced by ministers on pain of losing their job to like sign off these bloody licenses, even though they know that they're uh, even though they know the weapons under the licenses are being misused. Like and and the, the workers themselves, they they train to be electrical engineers, they train to be uh, metal fabricators, and they they live in a deindustrialized part of the country. They, they live in Scotland, where they used to build all sorts of other defense equipment, and they also used to build a lot of like consumer goods as well. And these people don't have anywhere else to go. And even when they're in the factory, like they don't actually know what like the circuit boards they're producing goes in what. All they know is how to build them. And the information is kept very, very tight at the top. Um, just another thing which I want to mention just because it's funny and this is meant to be a comedy podcast. Um, <laughs> um, but but the, um, I went to an arms fair in um, uh, – it was about six months before the High Court order – and I was always trying to get in touch with the people in the Department for International Trade, the, the officials who actually like do most of the signing off of these licenses. It, in controversial cases like Saudi Arabia, it goes up to ministers a lot of the time, but a lot of the like day-to-day signing off of these licenses are done by officials. 
And then I found this official and he was giving this um, little talk to prospective exporters about like, this is for British law and these are the criteria which you've got to jump through if you want to actually like export weapons across the world. And this guy was a total lunatic. He was like, he spent half the speech talking about how these... um, how the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps are the worst things in the world, like totally politicized, like, um, anyway. And then I caught him at the end and I told him who I was. I told him I was a parliamentary researcher. I didn't also tell him I was a journalist. And I was like taping our conversation. And, uh, he said, Oh, yeah. Like, uh, I, I said, Well, how can you be exporting to Saudi Arabia when, like, there's literally hundreds of, like, um, violations of international humanitarian law? They're bombing markets, they're bombing hospitals. Try, and then and he he starts to get squirmy obviously and then he told me that like oh yeah like i'm just doing what i'm told and then apropos of nothing he tells me but i'm also aware that there was a man called adolf eichmann <laughs> who said the same thing <laughs> like they know what's up mm-hmm. oh my god <laughs> i am um, i i have like a story which is more like is an anecdote than anything else but we were talking, I think Riley mentioned um, earlier that like you have lots of people who live in very poor areas of the UK and I'm sure this is like the same in other countries as well, where the one of the very few sources of income comes from places where they kind of manufacture parts of weapons and often the time they don't realize it. But one of the most interesting things, so I, I have friends who like went on to work on like graduate schemes at some of them at like BAE systems, but some at like various other engineering um, organizations. And I had a friend who worked on this project for six months, which involved kind of creating what he later found to be like wings for particular missiles. I'm not sure if that's like the right technical term. So Alice, Alice like, please correct me if that. Um, yeah, no, some of them, have, some of them do have wings. Uh, but, uh, cruise missiles do not, not really important. Yeah. <laughs> It was just like, he didn't really like for six months he was working on this thing. And like, every time he sort of asked like, what's this for? Um, he told me like his boss would just give him like a serial reference number and that was it. So there was no way for these people to even know what they were spending so much of their time doing. Um, yeah. and it was I just like, go, oh, yeah. I love to go to the racism factory, uh, which is the only <laughs> factory in my town and, and build part number 42069. Uh, which yeah. is going to end up in some Yemeni dude's face. But it re- no? I think the, it, it, the reason. Uh, go, go, go. It reminded me just of like the Raytheon, the Raytheon segment at the beginning of this episode, where they talk about problem solving and how when they view problem solving, what they're like the problems that they're trying, the problems that they tr- they they get very smart young like I presumably like graduates from very good universities. Oh yeah, the, the, the like, video that I pulled this from was like all, all like uh, like yeah. young dudes in lab coats walking through like glass and steel offices and stuff. It was great. Their problems are like you know how do you streamline something better or how can you like um you know I didn't study physics but how can you kind of like make a particular object fly at a level you know a level place like their their problems are very very they they present it as being theoretical to the point where people who are like really people who kind of work for these companies to make a living, but also by extension are helping like local economies sort of stay afloat are completely unaware that like this is the system that allows them to kind of live these semi normal lives where even then they're struggling. Well, mm-hmm. You could even, you can pull that up a level as well, right? Mm. Because if, you know, this is, might be difficult to hear, it might be even difficult for a lot of people like, you know, people I know in labor to hear, but if Saudi Arabia is under underwriting a fifth of our current account, you know, it's it's not just these sort of you know these 
these people who are making a choice to work in a factory for a system they don't understand, like we have to accept that there is quite a bit of of, pub- of, of social democratic public spending that is underwritten by what's happening to FOD. Oh, yeah. That's, that's hard to confront. What's yeah, happening no, to what? What's happening to what? Sorry, what's happening uh, to the 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 man who we uh, we we yeah. talked about in that excerpt? I, uh, I, I, uh, I sure. simply I refer I refer back to him because I because it is so easy for this to become entirely theoretical when the this is all enabling the killing and dismembering of uh, civilians in Yemen. Oh yeah, I mean like yeah. th- this is this is a sort of uh, like. It's very difficult to start talking about it in moral terms because once you do that, you you find yourself turning into this sort of civil service Eichmann who thinks, well, you know, if if I don't sign it, I'm out of a job, and then the next guy signs it, and it hasn't delayed it at all. So what's mm. the difference? Well, uh, in fact, this is this is where I want to bring in another quote from one of your articles, Aaron, uh, where you you talk about Jeremy Hunt, who spoke about this in moral terms as well, that it would be morally bankrupt. To cut the Saudis off um, from British arms, with the <laughs> argument that Britain needs to be involved so that we can somehow influence the course of events in Yemen <laughs> to make them somehow yeah. better. We are we are the friend holding the drunk guy back outside yeah, the yeah, club. Yeah. Well, that, that's yeah. That I find that really revealing. That quote because he's like, this is what you were ta- is what you were talking about imperialism. It's like when, when when we had a colonial empire, we felt just by our own virtuousness would be. It's, be- it's better for the natives for us to be there than for them to be sort of like running their own affairs or like managing their own defense. And it's the same thing with like um, with Saudi Arabia. We have like these things called liaison officers who sort of like train um, Saudi Arabia, like Royal Saudi Air Force people about human rights. We have uh, we have um, uh, defense attaches. We have sort of like high level meetings. But at the end of the day. Mohammed bin Salman came in as the defense minister, um, and he saw a path to become the, uh, the, the, the crown prince, and now he's, and he's succeeded in doing that. And he did it because he wanted to climb to the top of the, like, uh, of, the, of the Saudi hierarchy. And he and his people do not give a shit about what Britain says about anything. We provide the weapons, and we provide... Uh, 6,500 BAE people who are contracted directly by the MOD to be there to make sure that they can use these toys. And there they don't no- like talking about that either, do they? Oh, yeah, that, that was the thing which blew my mind, because outside of the defense press, it's rarely reported that it's not just arms. Like, more seriously than arms, it's people. Like, you have... Um, targeteers there you have the pe- you have the people who are supervising the putting of the bombs onto the planes you have the people who are um or who are fusing these bombs you have um an incredible amount of infrastructure in these forward operations in saudi arabia and they're not all british it's a british company a lot of them are like malaysian they're australian they're just like these sort of like um they're they're, they're just you know they're mercenaries Fucking cir- circo <laughs> presents a genocide right um and 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 that's the thing. The Saudi Arabians have learned actually a little bit more because they've been fighting this war for so long. But if it wasn't for contracts, um, contractors, which are uh, which contracts which the MOD has signed themselves, these planes wouldn't be taking off. 
Well, that's and, also part of the design, right? That is a design consideration, is that you need um, a lot of the like complex electronics and a lot of like uh, user-unfriendly stuff so that you can ha- like exercise some level of control over who's still supplying this stuff. Yeah, it's value-add. And, pe- and, and people keep saying that, like, oh, if we didn't um, provide the bombs to Saudi Arabia, the, like, the Russians or the Chinese would, and, and they would be... And, and like because they're Russian or Chinese, they uh, the war would be considerably worse. But I would argue that the war would be exactly the same because the the argument often goes like, well, we provide them with precision guided weapons, and if and if and the Russians would just provide them with sort of like uh, crude weapons, which you just like push out the back of a plane, like you know the barrel bombs in Syria or whatever. But like if you are using precision guided weapons to precisely target hospitals and schools, it doesn't make a difference whether they're precision guided. And at at a certain level, if you are the guy who is like rolling across a field of burning metal, uh, you don't care that much whether or not the burning metal came from crazy Vaclav's house of kerosene. Right. (laughs) And and also like, isn't, isn't the point about like precision, precision weapons are not like, you can't precisely control an explosion. Mm -hmm. So, even if you get your guy, like you're still fucking like blowing yeah, up, but like, like it's, infrastructure. It's, 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 it's also it's also like a problem with targeting. Just to talk about this briefly, is that like a, a lot of the targeting is of the form, uh, you know, a Saudi jet loitering on target sees like a truck. And they decide I can bomb this truck and I can go home, or a guy sends a WhatsApp message or something like that. You don't have Saudi Arabia certainly doesn't have uh, the kind of intelligence sources inside Yemen to be able to do anything pinpoint. That was also true of uh, of Libya, which is why we had to use so many special forces to go in and like designate targets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the hubris because they have these incredible, sophisticated arsenal. Um, just makes them more violent, really. Like the the amount of money they're spending um, on a war, which everyone but them seem to believe that they um, would definitely lose, is is mind blowing. Like um, I, there was some credible figure going around that they're spending fifty billion uh, US dollars a year on this war. And if you think about what fifty billion dollars could um, could do. I mean, at the end of the day, you had a civil war in Yemen, the Arab Spring came along, they swept away a strong man, and then there was a power vacuum. And that strong man, I don't want to get too much into the domestics, but like, he he put in his uncharismatic deputy, Salah put in Hadi, and then Salah went and joined the Houthis, who had been fighting for 10 years, to take back over the state. And then there was a civil war. And if that wasn't, and that is a bad situation. And that is on, that is on, that is on Yemen. But to internationalize the war, as we've seen now, it, 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 as soon as you internationalize local conflicts, you just protract them. And the British knew perfectly well that when their arms were going to be used to internationalize this war, it would go on longer. And they presumably told the Saudi Arabians that they thought this was going to happen, but they knew they weren't going to be listened to. But like they, we, we knew that um, by... That Saudi Arabia's intervention in 2015 would make it a lot longer and a lot bloodier, and it's face saving. Like the Saudi Arabians cannot leave Yemen without saving face, and the Houthis control Yemen now. So, and the Houthis have to live there. So, unless Saudi Arabia can't find a way out, so it will just go on as long as as long as Saudi Arabia is humiliated. Hmm. Yeah, 
which, which the Houthis are very good at doing. I, I particularly enjoyed because, like, uh, Iran doing the sort of agent of chaos stuff that Qasem Soleimani excelled at. Huge fan, by the way. Um, was <laughs> like no, genuinely was uh, was like supplying surface to surface missiles to the Houthis. Um, I, this is uh, this is overhyped a lot, right? A lot of them were not very good, or a lot of them were like homegrown. But still, though, they did manage to like partially blow up an airport terminal in Arpa, which is like sort of. I want to say like a Saudi resort town for like the like Saudi one percent, and that really rattled a lot of people in Riyadh very deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so like I, I I appreciate how much the Houthis are willing to sort of to twist the knife at these at these fuckers who are who are who are trying to starve them out. I think a, an instructive way to see the Iranian relationship with the um, the Houthis is sort of like maybe. Brezhnev's relationship with the sort of like nascent communists in Afghanistan, like they didn't, mm. the Russians didn't want to go in. They, they like the whole the whole idea of a sort of like communist revolution was based upon an urban like sort of like working class, and it just wasn't happening in Afghanistan. I mean, they knew it was going to happen, but like there was this like mission creep. And it's the same thing with Iran. Like Iran didn't want to get involved in Yemen. It had like. But, the, the, the Houthis have got like a heterodox version of Shiism, which is very different to the Iranian version of Shiism. They considered them sort of rubes. Like the Houthis used to send delegations to um, Tehran, and the Iranians are like chauvinists, and they used to like embarrass them. They're like they're, they're, they're racist, and they essentially like didn't feel like that it was really worth the candle to piss off Saudi Arabia in the Arab uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. But when the war started. Tehran mm. thought this is such a cheap way to keep the Saudis occupied. And yeah, this, this is, is exactly my point. This is this is why I why I admired Soleimani's instinct so much. Is like he, he is probably like the single the single biggest driver of this Iranian sort of almost like premonition for when is going to be a good idea to like watch somebody make a really stupid foreign policy decision like bombing Yemen. Yeah, the, the Iranians are like, they're not really imperialists. They're, they, they just do deals. They find people who are subjugated. They're hustlers. And, and obviously, this, the big exception is Syria, which is, a real, uh, which is a real sort of like moral contagion, which exists even in the sort of like upper echelons of the Iranian state. Like, but that's a whole other question. Um, mm. But the, in terms of Iraq and in terms of um, Yemen and in terms of Lebanon um, and, and in terms you according to press reports in um in Venezuela and some parts of Africa, the Iranians just find groups which are hard on hard on their luck and they provide support with uh, to them when things are going badly. So when so w- when these groups are in the ascendancy, they are true allies. Um but they're not like looking to mow down the neighborhood in order to take control of it. I mean they're in a very different position from Saudi Arabia because they're a global pariah and they're economically um, isolated so they don't have another choice to have learned to do this so they they just learn sanctions busting they learn how to sort of like move money they learn how to move arms they're very industrious with not much money but yeah like Saudi Arabia has really wa- so I, I was going to say Saudi Arabia has walked into their trap but like Saudi Arabia just sort of like trapped themselves yeah it's an unforced error yeah exactly and, and it is if we want to understand, if we want to peer into the future a little bit, right, I think we can't talk about this without also talking about the DFID FCO merger. And um, to, give, to give us a little bit of a flavor 
Uh, number one, for American listeners, um, most of our listeners are American still. Um, DFID is the Department for International Development. It's like our version like of USAID. U- yeah. it's, it's our version of USAID, but imagine if USAID was officially not affiliated, it's fully disaffiliated from the State Department. Um, and that is now ending because it's being absorbed into uh, the, the blob. Yeah, the blob. So this is this was a speech from uh, at the that was made by Anne Marie Trevelyan, who has been International Development Secretary since February. Uh, but this was a speech made a year ago at the previous DSEI Arms Fair. She says, "Outside the Excel Center today, there are campaigners whose wish for a safe and peaceful world." leads them to misunderstand how defense works. Sith Lord our sentence, by the way. <laughs> it is only by showing strength and credible deterrence that those who wish our citizens harm are persuaded not to attack our way of life. I want them to understand that by investing in the equipment and kit which gives our armed forces the ability to defend our citizens against our enemies, the government can provide the vital insurance policy and preparedness against unthinkable dangers that we create. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the equipment we purchase allows our armed forces to do global good 24/7. Citation needed. <laughs> Whether working to protect trade routes in the Straits of Hormuz, combating extremism in Africa, or defying Russian aggression in Eastern Europe. So, this is Oh yeah, I forgot the the fucking the dumbest part of us thinking we can punch above our weight is sending like a battalion of Welsh guards to train Estonians how to like march <laughs> up and down is defying Russian aggression. <laughs> defying Russian aggression. The British Army of the Rhine wasn't capable of defying Russian <laughs> aggression and everyone knew that, but suddenly we send like I don't know, an advisory working group to go and like look at a sand table and all of a sudden Putin is quaking in his shoes. I, I appreciate that very deeply. Um, but so I, the, the overt closeness, the, the ambition to make, to, to, to make a big part of Britain's international development agenda essentially one of arming every party in every conflict, uh, nearly. Uh, I mean, I think that's one that's been brewing for a while and it's sort of finally snapped into place officially with the announcement of this merger, right? I mean, we, f- uh, we fucked around so hard that we accidentally armed some communists in the form yeah. of uh, Rajava, so like, that, that's a sign of, like, there's, there's your mission creep. <laughs> so I, uh, but I think, uh, I want to, I want to say that if you want to understand what's, what's going to be happening with Diffid, all you have to do is look back in time to the Pergau Dam scandal. Um, which I imagine people listening to this probably won't be familiar with, but Aaron, I imagine you are familiar with this one particular earth-shattering scandal in the history of uh, foreign aid. Yes, so the idea, it's, um, it's a distinction between tied and untied aid, basically, and in 1997, Tony Blair, one of the best things he did, actually, was to set up the Department for International Development and take the power to spend aid um, out of uh, FCO control and put it into an independent department, which essentially runs... Uh, I mean, it's basically kind of filled with lefties. They um, they spend aid according to the 2002 International Development Act, and it's got to be designed to reduce poverty. Like, it's sort of... It's the 90s. It's like live aid. Like poverty was the sort of, like, hot-button issue. And, like, as you know, poverty hasn't gone away. But the um, but when aid is tied, as it was before 1997, you basically use it to lubricate 
arms deals or commercial deals for the UK. It's just like, so in this Pergo Dam scandal, um, Margaret Thatcher's um, aristocratic defence minister, a chap by the name of George Younger, struck a deal with uh, the incumbent Malaysian prime minister. And he said, and the, the Malaysian prime minister wanted a dam. And in exchange, the UK paid 200 million towards that dam. Um, but they wanted an arms deal as well. So the Malaysians had to buy arms in exchange for that aid money. And that disappeared with the um, foundation of DFID. It was set, um, Claire Short was the, first, um, was the first Secretary of State. And since then, DFID has done, it's considered internationally a pretty good actor in spending aid money. It spends some aid money on, on Yemen. It's a shame that like the, uh, the Department of Defense um, is keeps yeah, I, I'm it. using I'm using this pipette with one hand to empty this bucket that I'm filling up with a jug with the other hand. <laughs> but um, perhaps perhaps I'm being a bit verbose. But essentially, uh, it seems to be that Boris uh, is taking his cues from the Tory right to do away with um, untied aid. Uh, it's, it, under under Cameron, there was a sort of aid review which said that all aid must be spent in the national interest, which was one step towards that. And now it's um, aid will be spent um, more directly in the national interest under um, a more powerful FCO. Uh, next, perhaps the 0.7 commitment of GDI will disappear. And perhaps there will be um, some legislative changes to make aid essentially sort of a, a lubricant for um, for what Britain does best, which is um, which is security work, security training, counterterrorism stuff. Uh, under the SEO, SEO currently spends a bit of UK aid. They've been given more and more of Diffid's budget, and they've got this thing called the CSSF, the uh, Combined Security Something Fund. And that is essentially for counter-terrorism counter work, training, train and equip. They give loads of money to the Egyptian military. And this is, this is like... A, <laughs> Famously unproblematic <laughs> actors. Yeah. So it's not, it's not looking good. And there's a lot of very upset um, civil servants, obviously, in um, DFID. And it's going, to be a, it's going to really impact what is left of sort of like um, Britain's sort of like international reputation. Hmm. Good, good. So glad to hear this. Isn't the thing that, like, I mean, you know, again, the whole thing about the right wing trope of, like, you know, we need to cut international aid, we need to, like, cut, you know, money that, you know, we need to keep all, we need to, like, invest more in our country and stuff. And this is really actually, like, that being made into policy in a weird way. But it's one which kind of basically benefits one industry um, that has historically been a priority for this country anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in agreement and it's it's it just seems to be that like i think there's a misconception about like um what a like aid is like uh it's it's supporting um the poorest people in the world in order to not be totally um totally impoverished to get just above a poverty line mm. and that is and that is like good for global security like that is a good thing. If you don't have a lot of it, inequality and poverty, fuels revolutions and it fuels um, uh, yeah. it, it fuels chaos. And I think that people, it's not just it's not just pissing the money away. But it's one. Well, I mean, bit, now we're, we're we're heightening we're heightening those contradictions. We're turning the big contradictions dial up. And so I can I can only assume that the the logical endpoint is that we uh, take 
the stamp away from um from Difford, the big stamp that they put on the pallets of MREs that says like there's a big Union Jack and uh this is a gift from the British people and we just start stamping that on the missiles. <laughs> well, I mean I think like the way the way I understand this, right, is that there is that the the fundamentally what Britain has done since Thatcher um is look for ways to recycle money that gets spent. Right, so the Al-Yamama deal, in many ways, if most of the West relationship with Saudi Arabia was defined by a need to repatriate uh, money that was being spent more and more and more um, as the oil crisis caused prices yeah. to spike. And there's, there's no oh. like original sin here. You go back far enough, like who put the Saudis in power, right, in the twenties? Yeah. But but uh, so the I don't see the Diffid FCO merger as actually anything new. We've always been finding ways to recycle money that goes out of the country back into it. This is just, um, if we are going to be using aid money to lubricate trade deals where we say, you know, yes, we'll give you $100 million, but you have to spend a certain amount of it, you know, buying bombs to destroy what you're going to build with the rest of it. You know, it's, it is essentially a way, I think, to just keep those plates spinning because the plates must continue to spin, because if they stop spinning, it will be bad. And so we are just looking at ways to, to recycle this. And effectively, I think that I, I understand this as a way for the conservatives to do Keynesianism, but where they accept that, like, yes, we need to have you know, some jobs in Glen Roths. We need to have this money coming back into the economy. We need to, like, we need to be building up these companies and so on. But doing it in a way where any possible good that comes to people from having good jobs or these companies from being more valuable or whatever, all of those goods must be offset by causing incalculable suffering abroad because the world is a bad and evil place and we cannot allow ourselves to be good. No, it's it's the same thing as Greensill. It's that you don't want to do any kind of formal stimulus yourself. You don't want to have to do any monetary policy yourself. And so you funnel it through this network of outside actors in the form of BAE or Raytheon or whoever else, and they take their cut. And then you use this to like offshore some more and cut some more things and immiserate some more people and uh, destroy the prospect of any other jobs in Glenrothes or or wherever else. Turn all of Britain into into one gigantic arms factory. Yeah. DSEI is Christmas. Yeah, tr- truly, we are we are living in the racism factory. I mean, the the only way in which you can uh, do the foreign policy of uh, presumably like the twenty forties, twenty fifties, where we turn Britain into sort of a, an unsinkable gunboat is if you have the guns. And well, that's you know that's going to be a growth industry. We we've, mm-hmm. we've guaranteed that for ourselves. Um, so, so something to feel very good about, something to feel very positive about. Invest in Raytheon, um, <laughs> and yeah, no, this is this is a sign of a healthy country. And can we talk now about DSEI for something lighter? So uh, I I have some some quotes from from you, Aaron, from your article on DSEI, where you say at last September's DSEI Arms Fair in London, so the same one that Emery Trevelyan gave that bird brain speech before. Uh, I asked, as you saying this, I asked Adam Fico, Raytheon's head of government relations, how the firm's code of conduct, quote unquote, do the right thing, respect human rights, squares with the <laughs> products being found in the wreckage of schools and hospitals. After evading the, se- the question several times, he said, I can only tell you, I, s- I can tell you I certainly didn't kill anybody. 
and rushed away into a tiny room marked staff only. (laughs) (laughs) Pimp. This is this is like this is my favorite thing about DSCI is that it is an an incredibly surreal thing. Not just on the inside, on the outside, it's surreal too because the protesters, like th- the extent to which protesting against Britain's involvement in the arms trade has been uh, like a political thing, it tends to be uh, like people on the left, the kind of people who will like chain themselves to buses and stuff. And so you get this tremendously weird situation whereby on the inside you'll have a guy doing the Simpsons bit where like name name non-war crimes uses for a paveway bomb. Uh number one is a humorous substitute for your own lips. And on the outside <laughs> On the outside, you have a bunch of like grandmothers and stuff like tying themselves to the DLR, while a bunch of like bemused cops go and like fetch hacksaws. And it just it everything about DSEI. If you haven't been, I recommend getting as physically close to it as possible because it will like it is. It's one of those spaces. It's like Dubai. It's like it. it all of the sort of contradictions of living in, in the twenty first century just all sort of leap out at you at once. It oh, rules. Oh yeah, it, it's an Adam. Curtis film made material. Yes, uh, Aaron. Yeah. Please, uh, please, please, please do describe more your experience. Well, I think um, it's like Dubai is spot on. It's literally owned by the UAE government, the XL Center in which it takes place. And um, I was just struck by this uh, the the scale of the place. Like it would take you perhaps maybe twenty minutes to walk um, so, uh, from the top to the bottom of it. Um, and then maybe 20 minutes to walk east-west as well. You couldn't get around it in a day. It goes on for five days, and it's got everything from people who manufacture the springs at the bottom of the supply chain to people who manufacture the helicopters at the top of the supply chain. And the one thing that struck me, um, there's this fantastic um, arms anthropologist who's made the arms trade his sort of like field of study called Jonathan Newman, um, not the the musician. And um, he... He, he he was chatting to me in, in, in the canteen and he was saying that it's sort of like an ecosystem. Like these people are there to create threats. Like you, you need this weapon because there's a threat and it could come around the corner at any moment. So there's a huge amount of R&D put into this technology. And then, and then, and then once that threat has been done, the other side uh, creates sort of like countermeasures for those threats. So like across, you'll be having sort of like Someone will be making landmines on one side of a corridor, and then someone will be making counter landmine measures. And these, uh, and this technology just spirals <laughs> upwards and upwards and upwards. And this is sort of like the ecosystem in which the defense sector, like, um, exi- like is. And it's 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 like, and it's also kind of like strangely like spooky. Like, for example, like like so, sort of banal. Like there will be sort of like um, a bullet manufacturer, and then you have to like put your hand. Uh, you, you you guess how many bullets are in the jar, and it gives you a fifty pound MS voucher. Or there's like sort of there, there was an, <laughs> there, there was an, there was an Italian company which was selling um, some sort of small arms, and there was literally a woman in an Italian flag bikini holding a gun to like get the oh, attention of, to get the attention of like all of these sort of like uh, pale male and stale people like wandering by, but like. Can't believe identity politics has come to DSEI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, DSEI is, is is a fun time. I ca- catch me at the like police and security section grabbing for a bunch of free hats. 
uh, <laughs> uh, like key rings and stuff, little like uh, scale models. Uh, like uh, as as I look at uh, like the long range acoustic deterrent salesman blasting directly across the uh, the aisle into the long range acoustic deterrent countermeasures stall, <laughs> blasting the way back and creating a total dead zone of silence. I just I just look at that and I think capitalism is the most efficient distribution of resources that it's possible <laughs> to have. <laughs> yeah, man, thank, thank goodness, you know, we, we broke the power of all those unions because now we have, now we can make an orchestra of different LRAD devices. <laughs> there was, there was a, one of the, one of the um, companies that I found when I was looking at the Riot Police thing was uh, called uh, Black Cerberus and they manufacture, it's uh, they, awesome. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. They manufacture a handheld LRAD that you hold <laughs> like a, like a, like a, an anti-tank launcher. It's cool. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, little note on DSCI, like the, the the FCO has a list. I think it's sort of like bound by law to produce a list of like human rights, um, like pro- problematic countries for human rights, and sort of Israel's on there, um, like Indonesia's on there, Russia's on there, Iran's on there, even Saudi Arabia's on there. So this is a sort of list is made a little bit more impartially, and you see the name tags of the delegations going round, and they're the same people. So like so so the 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 home office which runs this event is inviting people which the foreign office says themselves are repressing their populations or or oppressing other populations and they are just going shopping and you know who's leading them who pick they get picked up from a hotel by UK military personnel and all of their like camouflage with all of their medals they're picked up from a Radisson they're driven to the arse end of Canning Town and they're, they're, and that's what the UK military does. They go they take these people shopping. Yeah, I I love to I love to like uh, explore the alternate career path I took when I was like the realities diverged when I was eighteen and I just like I just do this for a living now instead of doing a podcast I just like ferry a bunch of Emiratis around to buy like surface to air missiles. Um, this is tremendously tremendously cool. Yeah. Um, and I also, right, I think that the, 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 the glibness with which DSEI is carried off, the glibness mm. to which protests to its, uh, protests against it are responded to, uh, and the glibness with which, um, all of the high flown moral language about doing the right thing, muscular liberalism, respecting human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it, it feels to me like parody. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it, it feels it's really like an insult. Like also yeah. the 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 other thing, the other list that I wanted to talk about besides uh, lists of like problematic states is lists of problematic items. Like the 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 um uh, I think it's uh, the FCO still decides what you have to get a license for, and this changes based on like uh, who makes enough of a fuss to like notice. So like uh, the big change that I remember was that like, I think they started putting leg irons on the list of things that you couldn't sell to like a, a repressive state because you would torture people with them. Uh, but like, you can still go to DSEI and they'll be like, it's very much like the kind of illegal fireworks vibe yeah, where like, yeah, yeah. even where this stuff is, is, is formally, you, you're not supposed to sell this. You can be like, no, actually I'm, I'm just advertising this, this, uh, stun baton. It's fine. Uh, don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, and it's the, what, the way I see this, right. Is I see all of this, all, all of the language around this is the reason I keep going back to PR is that essentially it is 
representing the UK, especially to its own citizens, not just to other countries, but to its own citizens, as something it is fundamentally not. Hmm. It is. It is a. It is about. It's a. And I think you know there are. I'm I'm a bit heterodox about this. I think that the explanations for this are deeply psychological, rooted in our collective neuroses about no longer being important. They're also uh, it's also just simple denial, mm-hmm. and it is. Oh, I mean, you could you could write a thesis about just the use of the phrase "hunching above our weight" in British defense thinking. Yeah, uh, but it it also it is it is quite simply if you are going to run a country this way. You need to have these cash cow industries, but that don't give anyone that don't create sort of um, confidence and solidarity among the working class of your own country. So it's like it is as though it, it is just this perfect encapsulation, I think, of why of one of the this is a big patch of black mold mm. uh, in as much as Britain is a country with sick building syndrome, as yeah. you say, Alice. Well, like, also th- think about think about Glenn Rothers, right? Um, if if you uh, say if you want to unionize those guys, and if if they want to say no, we're not comfortable making uh, part number four twenty sixty nine because we have read about it just decapitating a dude. Which, which to be fair, that did happen in Scotland at the Rolls Royce factory mm-hmm. where the workers refused to repair planes for Pinochet. So yeah. there, I- e- there are. There are solutions to this. Though. But my my question my question is: at first of all, to what extent did that hurt Pinochet? Second of all, um, especially now when uh, that that power imbalance has like been further imbalanced. If you try to if you try to unionize one of these sort of these cottage industries that like make uh, circuit boards or like make fins. Um, what's to stop Raytheon or BAE or whoever else from saying, okay, well, we'll but, just move to the next shithole town ten minutes down the road, and you have now lost your last factory, and the only job available to you is, I don't know, like heroin dealer. Yeah, another thing that there's no, yeah, there's no bargaining power. So yeah, these people are these people are living a hand to mouth existence if they don't work for that's the, they're the only good jobs in town. Like in Raytheon is a real, real like deprived place. It's like sort of like built in utopianism of the sort of like new town movement, and it's all just decayed. And this one factory is the only real jobs left in town. And these people who work there know that, like, because they're like brothers and sisters and wives are working in like in home bargains as a cashier, and like they are they're earning nothing. So it's like, I mean, who's going to kick up a fuss against that? Well, it's it's de- it is. I think at this point, it is it is essentially desperation all the way down. It's desperation on the part of the of the country. It's desperation on the part of the factory. It's desperation on the part of the individuals. And when you are made weak like this, then the Ra- of course the Raytheons of the world just come in and take over because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a very real sense, the fascism is already here, right? Like the the strong do as they will, the weak uh, suffer as they must. We, what we have identified here is uh, absolutely no kind of solutions, merely several like spokes on a Buddhist wheel of suffering, right? Like we've just like found ways in which it's shit for everyone worldwide, unless you're like one of these fucking suit guys who can be like, "Well, I, I haven't killed anyone. I mean, those it, guys are fine." I was going to say it's probably like worth also noting that even. Um, we're talking like this episode is obviously about weapons, but like one of the big things, 
especially like in the context of unionization is obviously surveillance technology, right? So not just in terms of like surveillance drones, but also the, you know, types of like software and network software, which facilitates that. And I think I was thinking about this in the context of all the kind of right, like leftist support for unionizing like companies in Silicon Valley. And I guess like the tech companies that still exist in Silicon roundabout, but like other areas where you have those bit, you know, you kind of have like tech hubs and everything. Um, yeah. And I just, I, I kind of wonder, and this is like more of a question to all of you, like what, as if you're like a leftist, like what, how, how do we sort of interact with that? Cause I feel like there's one trajectory or one pathology when we talk about what we think about, what, what we think about like companies that and corporations that are developing physical arms that physically destroy people and physically destroy villages and cities and weddings and stuff like that. But what Mm. about like the kind of broader consensus around surveillance software and, you know, the stuff that facilitates the arms trade. And I think will just be definitely become much more prominent and much more difficult for leftists to like for like, you know, for people who are sort of on the left to really kind of reckon with. I I think it's, it's much more difficult also because like programmers, uh, like even more than like guys who make circuit boards are very sort of institutionally hostile towards asking, is this tool that I made a thing that should exist? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Aaron, I'm interested to know sort of how, how you think of this broader conception of the uh, arms and armament foreign policy blob that Hussein's describing. So, yeah, I think the only way out of the morass we're in is for um, a really, um, a, a really like well-resourced industrial policy, which diversifies the skills which are used in the um, export of arms or the manufacture of surveillance technology into civilian uses or, um, or um, domestic procurement for like arms. Like there's no, re- like, the, the the defense sector is so weighted on um on 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 export markets like why are we why are we why are the south koreans building our frigates for example when we're building saudi arabia's bombs like why don't we build our own frigates and why don't we uh it, it, it's it's about like education and it's but it's also about retooling like it was the famous um the famous case uh, it was in the seventies. There was a, uh, the workers who were going under were, try, were did lots of proposals to retool um, a factory which they were working in producing arms, and um, it was actually a, a Labour government um, which which uh, which didn't which didn't follow through on that. But Corbyn, when he was in power, had a defence diversification agency plan. It wasn't very fleshed out, but someone needs to think very seriously, not just because of um, the bloodshed which the British export industries are involved in, but in order to create sustainable jobs which are actually producing things which people need, uh, whether it's in energy or renewables or it's in like consumer goods or it's in domestic, domestic defense procurement, you just need to uh, have a, a well-resourced shift away from what we're doing now. And that can only mm. come from central government. I think that's I think that's a really great point because it, like a- apart from everything else, and this is way down the list of things to be upset about, but it is on there. Is thinking about all of the expertise uh, 
uh, like all of the skill that's going into manufacturing in this country and what it's actually going to build is like they're brilliant designers, like incredible. oh yeah, you know it's incredibly an incredibly skilled way of in this case firing metal shards at several hundred miles an hour into a, like a, a wide area, and I'm like this this is what we're we're using all all of that engineering potential to do. Uh, it's it's grim. Mm. Um, so uh. Aaron, I'm noting noting that we're going slightly long here, but this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I would just say, do you have any uh, do you have a- any any final thoughts on on our subject matter here, or anything you want to leave our listeners with? Um, let me think about it for a moment. You can cut out my thinking, can you? <laughs> um, yes, of course. Um, we can cut everything you think about. <laughs> um, I just think that. Um, in terms of foreign po- like in terms of foreign policy we really need to uh stop believing that we like we ne- we need to reconfigure our geostrategic relationships uh particularly in the middle east and at the moment there's a huge cold war going on between um between Saudi Arabia and Iran which the Americans are getting involved in on the Saudi side and i think it would be um at our peril to be supporting it either diplomatically or through the provision of equipment um, and manpower to run that equipment because there's only one way that goes and that is going to be the violence which we sow abroad um, will be um, reaped on our own shores and it's not a controversial thing to say whatsoever it's what happened during French colonialism in Algeria it's what's happened with the war on terror from uh, for the US and we've seen domestic terrorism happen here and um it's uh and th- there's a there's a there's a right wing appeal to that it's just like even the right can understand if you mess with other people they're going to be um disgruntled and humiliated and want to fight back so i think that that the left should be really using the language of um blowback and security uh and uh, uh weaponizing it against the notions of security which the um which the right pushes Mm. Mm. Like also, I'm 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 very um, I'm reminded of Robert Paxton's sort of back of the envelope definition of fascism as uh, colonial violence applied to the imperial core, and I don't think the like uh, insane like uh, gun rights people in America are wholly wrong when they say that if you like if you give a standing army these tools, eventually there is the possibility that they'll be used against you too. Uh, and we see that with like whether that's Elrads being turned on protesters or um, or whatever else, and all of the disgruntled um, American service personnel who have been fighting twenty years on the war on terror and are coming back with no mm-hmm. no veteran rights, uh, a, an enormous culture war. They're all armed to the hilt. They're very well trained. Like, I mean, it's not improbable, but this is going to be spark violence in the US now with like with yeah. everything we've been seeing. Yeah, con- conditary. What is that? A side dish? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I think that's that's as good as, as a place as any to uh, to leave it. Aaron, yeah, you- thank you so much for coming on and talking Absolutely. about this. This is today. great. This was I, I I I can't say I've had a good time, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, I think this this has been very eye opening and very very interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm a big fan of a podcast as well, so I'm really pleased to be well, on. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you very also, much. Also given me the idea, I really badly want to do an episode about like uh, like the fry core of the 21st century, whether that's like three percenters or like the Democratic Football Lads Alliance. So I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna think about this because those guys fascinate me. <laughs> oh yeah. Anyway, uh, so you know, I I I feel weird to do all of the usual plugs and promotions at the end. You know what they are. The only one I'm going to do this time is bail funds that people are still getting, you know, shackled and, and shit. So you you just you got to keep it going to those. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll catch you on the Patreon on Thursday. I, I, I sort of psychologically need to do like a, a funny episode now. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so once again, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, and to all our listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, and yeah, we'll catch you in a couple of days. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.